Father, I think of all these things taking place uh, in the life of the church, and, and I pray that structures might not get in the way of what we really want. And God, we really want to be followers of Christ. He gave His all for us, as we saw last week, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And Father, we want to be great in the kingdom, and to be great, it means that we must be servants. So we want God to be servants of Christ, bond slaves, slaves of Jesus, who do what He tells us to do, go where He tells us to go, and serve people, um, looking out not for our own interests only, but looking for the interests of others. So I pray that you would help us with that. And now as we come to Your Word, I pray that we'd realize that the one You look to is the one who is humble, the one who is contrite of spirit, and the one who trembles at Your Word. And so may we tremble at Your Word here this morning. May we humbly receive it in our hearts. And Lord, even as I've prayed all week long, I pray that You might pierce and convict where conviction needs to be, that You would comfort and encourage where encouragement needs to be as well as we look at Jesus just even looking into our lives and evaluating us. I pray, God, that You would work Your work in us now. You know, apart from Your Spirit, my words will go out as vain words. And yet, with Your Spirit taking Your Word, applying it deep into our hearts, You can do a great thing. And I pray, Lord, that You would do that today for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1949, a film uh, was produced, came out, an American scene called The Inspector General. How many of you have seen that movie? It's kind of an older movie. Not very, not very many of you. It stars Danny Kaye. Danny Kaye is a, wire, a wiry, kind of funny guy. Uh, the, the plot of the movie is really a humorous film about an illiterate, wandering gypsy named Georgie who was mistaken for the city inspector. And so he comes into the city and they think that he is the, the one who's going to inspect the city and bring back a message then to uh, the higher-ups about how that city is doing, exposed corruption, those kind of things. Now, the problem is the city is corrupt to the core. The mayor is corrupt and all the city officials are related to him, including the police chief and the city treasurer. And they know that with the inspector general coming, they're in deep trouble. And so they try to wine him and dine him and get him drunk and try to have him drink some poison. And that didn't work. And so then they tried to bribe him by, by bringing all kinds of food to, or all kinds of uh, money to him. In fact, there's a humorous scene I remember when Danny Kaye is there and the mayor comes in and gives him a big bag of money and he's trying to hide. So and someone else knocks at the door and so he hides the, hides the mayor here and then someone else comes in he takes the money and tries to hide someone else over there because they're all coming individually so as to bribe the inspector general and it's really quite a, a funny movie. And then the real inspector general shows up. And then some twists and turns. Well, to make a long story short, not to destroy the movie for you, it all ends well. The, the corrupt officials get placed in prison. Uh, they get hanged for their crimes. Georgie's appointed mayor. He gets the woman that he loves. And everyone lives happily ever after. So that's the movie. You can look it up online if you want. Well, this morning we're going to see the true Inspector General, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come into Jerusalem and inspect the city. He's going to come into Jerusalem amidst the, the praises of men. And then when he's there, he's going to look out among Jerusalem and see if there is fruit there and the city will be found wanting. The great Jerusalem, the city on a hill for all to see, the, the city of Jerusalem where God chose to put His name was a poor reflection of God to the world. That's why Jesus came. He came to judge that place. Like city inspectors would, to set things right. But He came to save His people, those who would repent from their sins and follow Christ well, that's our, our text today, Mark chapter 11, 1 through 28, 26. Let me just read that for you here. Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt there tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. 
and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, Why are, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and He sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming Kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the, tri the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Seats of those who were selling doves, yes. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple and began to teach them and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy Him, for they were afraid of Him. For the whole crowd was astonished at His teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has said is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whether you stand praying, forgive. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Verse 26 says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now we're going to be looking in detail in terms of some of the historical things that took place here. but So that my message this morning isn't just a mere historical lesson. I want to give you a parallel thought for you to keep in mind as Jesus is looking at, at Jerusalem. Jesus Christ isn't merely the inspector of cities. He is also the inspector of souls. He knows what's going on in every single one of our hearts. As Jesus said to the church in Thyatira, Revelation 2.23 says, I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Word of God is a sword that can cut deep. And it can cut deeper than any human scalpel can cut. It can cut between the division of soul and spirit. And it says that when God cuts, all of our thoughts are open and laid bare to the Lord. The Lord searches our hearts. And He knows. So, so if Jesus is, is searching Jerusalem, know that Jesus searches our hearts as well. You know, there are many people in this world, and many people in the church, probably especially who miss this, they, they think it's all about externals and performance and being good on the outside. As if... God can't see on the inside. That's how men look at the world. That's how men in the world look, because it's all that men can see. But when God looks at the world, He focuses far beneath our skin. 
to the depths of our hearts. As God told Samuel, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief inspector general of all of our souls. Now those who have something to hide, as in the Pharisees and Sadducees, will resist it and try to put up some kind of good front. But those who walk in integrity will and who know their sin, and who know Christ and there's forgiveness there, and want to reform, when God says, I'm going to search you, the believer in Christ will say, we have at it, let's bring it on. Not because of perfection, as if they will pass inspection, but because they have nothing to hide. What they are on the inside is what they are on the outside, and God is renewing their hearts. And when sin's exposed, they have an opportunity to repent. Unlike Jerusalem, sin was exposed, they had a chance to repent, and they didn't. You remember David, Psalm 139? He begins the psalm, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. And then goes throughout the whole rest of the psalm speaking about how much God knows about us. I mean, He knows where we go. He knows what we do. He knows what we say, what we think, even where we think in the secret places. God knew us in the womb. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And so David says at the end of the psalm, and I trust this is your heart this morning as we think about the the chief inspector general looking at Jerusalem. He says this in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. See what he's saying? He says, search me, God. Know my heart. If, if there's something hurtful, if there's something wrong in there, expose it, bring it out, and lead me in the everlasting way opposed to the Pharisees who saw and were exposed and they resisted it to the core. I just long for us to have soft hearts as God looks at us. Because Jesus is the Inspector General. At the end of time, He will judge the world. Everyone's deeds will be exposed. The sheep will place on His right and the goats on His left. Those who trusted in Him will be on His right and enjoy pleasures in heaven. And those who have hated Him and not trusted Him will spend eternity in hell. And the good news is that God looks to the humble who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in the cross. And He takes his, our sin upon His shoulders on the cross. Wipes it away. So we don't have to fear His searching of us. And this morning we get a, really a preview of judgment upon Jerusalem. Upon our own hearts if we're hard like Jerusalem was. Well, as we've come here to Mark chapter 11, this is the climactic, a climactic point in the Gospel of Mark. So the first ten chapters of the Gospel of Mark, as we have seen over this year, we started in January 1st and just kind of been working through the, the Gospel of Mark. The first ten chapters deal with about three years of the life of Jesus. And then verse chapters 11 through 16 deal with one week in the life of Jesus. So because things are, are climaxing. And in fact, even two of the last three chapters, chapters 14 and 15, cover less than 24 hours in the life of Christ. It's because Mark is, is kind of moving along, giving us a flavor of Jesus. He is the servant who has come to save. And how does he save? He saves through his death on the cross. That's the most important thing. That's why he focuses most of his time here. Jesus is headed for his death. When Peter said to Jesus, You are the Christ, Jesus began to tell him what would take place, that we're going to Jerusalem and we will, Son of Man will suffer many things. Be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and they'll hand him over to be killed. Jesus knew he'd come to Jerusalem. In fact, that's what we looked at last week. Look at Mark chapter 10, right? Verses 33 and 34. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. It's where he's coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And here we see Jesus now coming to Jerusalem. My first point is this, verses 1-10, through 10, entering Jerusalem. We see Jesus entering Jerusalem. Verse 11 says that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And verses 1-10 through 10 really show the process of preparing of how that took place. We see the approach coming in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples ahead. At the end of chapter 10, He was in Jericho. Jericho, if you remember, is down by the Jordan River uh, east of Jerusalem. And then they walked. He and His disciples, maybe a few others, walked the 20 miles up to Jerusalem. 
at 3,500 feet in elevation up that hill. I remember when Yvonne and I were there in Jerusalem and we rode the bus from Jericho to Jerusalem. Do you remember that? The bus was like going, which is the highest gear, trying to go up this hill, trying to and wasn't going very fast, but the engine chair was working hard because we were going up to Jerusalem. And as they're approaching, Jerusalem is just up and over the ridge. You go up and over the Mount of Olives, and then it kind of goes down and then up the Kidron Valley, and then up and there on the plateau is Jerusalem. But on the ridge, kind of on the east side of the ridge, there are two cities, Bethphage and Bethany. We don't know very much about Bethphage, only that it's the house of figs. Beth, house, Fage, figs. It's the house of figs. And Bethany, we know just a little bit about that. It's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from. It's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now, before entering Jerusalem, he wanted to make sure Jesus did that everything went as planned. He wasn't just going to stroll into Jerusalem with his disciples. He knew this was the last time he was coming in and wanted to make sure that everything was right. So he sent these disciples ahead to get this donkey because he would ride into Jerusalem, he knew, on a donkey because Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied of how the king would come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus would enter Jerusalem as their king. Not on a royal steed like most kings, but he would ride on a donkey demonstrating the character of this king who is coming to humbly serve the people, right? The Son of Man, chapter 10, verse 45, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was coming as a humble servant. From the best we can tell, Jesus didn't own a donkey, so he borrowed one. And how he borrowed it is told in verses 2 and 3. And Jesus said to these two disciples, go into the village opposite you. Maybe Bethphage, maybe Bethany. We don't know exactly where it is. And immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Probably a, a young colt, a young donkey. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back there. Now, at this point, people go back and forth. Well, how did Jesus know this donkey would be there? And how do you know what would transpire in terms of the conversation? Was it divine foreknowledge? Or did Jesus have some advanced planning here? We don't know. But we do know that it went down exactly as Jesus planned it would. Verse 4, when they went away, found a colt tied at the door outside the street, they just they untied it. The kids, you've got to catch this scene. The disciples are coming in and they see this donkey and they start untying it. This is like Grand Theft Donkey. Right, <laughs> and and so they're uh, they're accused a little bit, but however it was, they they responded just like Jesus had told them to. Verse five: Some of the bystanders saying, "What are you doing, untying the colt?" And they spoke just as Jesus had told them. Verse six: And they gave them permission. So disciples, bring back this donkey. Had never nobody verse two had never ridden on this donkey before. Therefore, it didn't have anything on his back. It wasn't prepared. And so, as they, verse 7, brought their colt to Jesus, they put their coats on it, and Jesus sat upon it. So they, they took their cloaks, their outer garment, laid it on there so Jesus would have some sort of a saddle to sit on for this donkey. While all this was planned, what happened next was pretty spontaneous, though Jesus certainly knew it was going to take place. And they spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut down from the field. I don't think Jesus commanded everybody to, okay, take your coats off, put them on the, on the ground so I can trample them. I don't think Jesus commanded that. I think it was just a natural response, just the gravity of the moment. They knew what Jesus was doing. and They put their garments down as a sign of submission. It's what you do when the Lord comes to town, when the king comes to town, especially an uprising king. When, when Jehu was anointed by the Lord King over Israel. Though Jehoram was still king, Jehu was anointed. His servants took off their coats and placed them under his feet to have him stand and walk on their garments. And they blew a trumpet and they said, Jehu is king! Because his revolution's taking place. And we're loyal to Jehu. And sure enough, a little bit later, Jehu meets Jehoram who was injured in war. He took an arrow out, pierced him through the chest, and Jehu became king. 
And these servants, they'd taken off their garments, allowed the king to step on a sign of submission to the future king. And when they, they spread the palm branches there as well, it was also a way to show honor the one who rides upon the donkey. Today, we, we might say it a little bit different. Today, we might take this big, long red carpet and roll it out so that Jesus could come walking on a red carpet. This was the, this was the red carpet treatment, right? The, the green leafy treatment, if you will. The palm branch treatment. Welcoming the king into the city. That's what they were doing. They're welcoming Jesus. Now, they were anticipating that Jesus would overrule the Roman tyranny. And therefore, they're saying we have our allegiance to Jesus. You can see that in the words they sung, verse 9. And those who went in front and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! These words come from Psalm 118. It's appropriate that Darren read that psalm today. It's often sung the Jew, song that the Jews sang during the Passover week. They sang the songs from Psalm 113, Psalm 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. These were like the songs they sung at the Passover time. So they would have been on their minds. They would have been singing this. And these words come from Psalm 118, 25, and 26. You don't have to turn in your Bibles, but I'll just read it to you. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. You might look and there might be some comparison there. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Was You heard that come out. But where's Hosanna? Well, Hosanna is in Psalm 118, verse 25. It's in the Hebrew. reads like this. Ana Adonai Hoshiana. Ana, like, like now, Lord. Adonai. Adonai is the Lord. Hoshiana. Na means plea. Hoshiana, save. It means, oh Lord, now, please save. That's what they're singing. Please save us. Please save us. Or as our English translation says, oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. So Hosanna says, come and save us, Jesus. They're looking at Jesus as their political Savior so as to overturn the, the Romans. And they said, we're going to submit to this king, not to that king. In fact, you can even see a slight change from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 doesn't speak about the, the kingdom of David. It doesn't speak about a, a kingdom. And yet these people along the way see and sense that Jesus is coming in as a king. This is the coming kingdom of David. They're ready for revolution. Ready for a new king to top the Roman government. And, and there's no small crowd either. Where's the trip from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem with 12 disciples, maybe a little bit more. Here we see a lot more. Verse 8 says that many spread their coats in the road. And if you're going to have your coats spread in the road, and if there's only 12 who spread their coats in the road, I mean, your parade is going to be about 15 feet long, right? But they had many spread their coats along the parade route as they came in. And verse 8 even continues to speak about others spread leafy branches. So, so some put their coats in there. Others put leafy branches to prepare the way for Jesus. And verse 9 tells how there was this group in front of Jesus and this group behind Jesus in this whole profession. Maybe hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people ready for this revolution that would take place with Jesus. And they, they knew full well who Jesus was. They'd seen His miracles. They'd heard His teaching. They sensed that something big was about to happen and they were ready for it. There was another time told in John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, the crowds of the people wanted to take Him by force and make Him king. They wanted to make this miracle worker who could feed us. Let's make this man king. Jesus slept away, uh, slipped away because that wasn't the kind of king that He was looking to be. But Luke's account said, as soon as Jesus was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was the miracles they'd seen, the, the teaching they had heard that said, this Jesus is the one we want to follow. And so they were all ready for it. They're all primed. The time was right, seeking a revolution. And they knew that this was the one, but little did they know that within a week they would all be in the crowd shouting out, crucify Him, crucify Him. Mark 15, verse 13. They didn't know God's plan. They didn't know that Jesus would be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and be condemned to death and that He'd be handed over to the Gentiles who would mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him. 
They didn't know that three days later he'd rise from the dead. And I just, just by a quick way of application here, how many people are like the city of Jerusalem? At one moment, they're just worshiping the Lord. They're, they are into it. Hands held high. My eyes closed. Worshiping the Lord in church, in a public place. And then when they go home, in the confines, the privateness of their house, how differently they live. Because you've got all these people worshiping. And yet when Jesus gets in to examine and look at their city, they're really not living a life that should be worshiping, that was worshiping Him. Now, people may look good on Sundays, but with a little bit of an introspection, they might find something else going on in their house. And people may be able to fool other church folk. People may be able to fool me. But you can't fool the Inspector General. When he's looking for fruit, he'll find out what's really there or not. We see him entering the city. My second point, verse 11 through 26, we see him looking for fruit. Because that's what he's doing. He's looking for fruit. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything... He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Here Jesus was now in Jerusalem, in the heart of Jerusalem, which was the Temple Mount. And He was looking around, just looking and observing everything. And then He returned to where He was staying at Bethany. Now, every night He went out of the city to Bethany. I think it's for safety reasons. If He had stayed in the city, He may have been hunted, cut down and killed before His hour. So he went out to Bethany, probably at the home of Mary and Lazarus and Martha. We were not exactly sure. But Jesus looked around, saw what the temple was like, saw what the church gathering was really like. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had ever been in the temple. As a baby, Jesus was presented to the Lord according to the law of Moses. As a young boy, he was in the temple asking questions of the teachers and the leaders. And surely he traveled to Jerusalem three times each year, celebrating a feast to the Lord according to the law of Moses, like every male did in Jerusalem. Jesus was very familiar with what went on in that temple, but I think particularly this night as He was thinking about really inspecting them to see where the fruit is, I think He went to bed troubled, provoked in His spirit when He saw the barrenness of everything that was taking place in the temple. Lots of activity for sure, but it was, it was fruitless. Looking for fruit and finding none. Well, the next day, verse 12, we find Jesus leaving Bethany, walking up and over the Mount of Olives, and then coming down into Jerusalem. And somewhere along that path, He became hungry. Maybe He skipped breakfast in the morning. We're not exactly sure. But seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to see if perhaps He would find anything on it. And when He came to it, He found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit of you again. And his disciples were listening. Fig trees were abundant in those areas. I mean, they were in Bethphage, right? Bethphage, house of figs. Obviously, you'd think the fig trees were there, right? That's why you name things that way. And it was the spring of the year, the time of the fast Passover. We don't know exactly when that was because the date shifted back and forth. And sometime March, sometime April, about like our Easter, it changes and fig trees season when they put out their leaves, but still a few weeks away from when the trees would begin producing figs. And Jesus saw this tree from a distance, full of leaves, looked healthy, and then He went looking for fruit on this tree. And when Jesus approached this tree, He found nothing to eat. So being without fruit, Jesus cursed the tree, saying, May no one ever eat fruit of you again. Now that fig tree, we're going to revisit in verse 20, 21. But I'm just telling you, this, this is a sort of like an illustration, a little picture, a little um, object lesson, illustration that Jesus is showing. Here's a tree, full bloom, should have fruit, didn't have fruit. And so He cursed it. It's a picture of Israel. They had lots of show, lots of religious activity, lots of leaves, lots of foliage, but no fruit. And so just as Jesus cursed this tree, He's going to condemn the activities in the temple as well. And that's what we see coming here in verse 15. And then they came to Jerusalem. And He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the, money, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. 
And He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, this is the reality of what's going on in Israel. Lots of activities. Lots of people. Lots of animals. Lots of buying. Lots of selling. Lots of money changing hands. Many sacrifices, but ultimately fruitless. Can you imagine the scene? What was taking place there? I mean, we're sitting here kind of quiet, right? And um, the scene there was nothing but quiet. You guys ever played the game of Pit before? You know what I'm talking about? Where you have your cards and sometimes you got barley and sometimes you got oats and sometimes you got corn and you're, you're like trading. I mean, you've played this game before, right? And, and what you say is you got two, you got two barleys in your hand and what do you say? Two. You don't just say two. What do you say? Two, 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 two. And then someone else has two corns in their hand and you're trying to get a whole hand of barley or a whole hand of oats or something like that. And it's just a, a ruckus. Everybody just kind of kind of going. So everyone, right? You play, make like you're playing pit, okay? And say two, 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 or three, 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 three. Okay, everyone, like that. Come on. Two, 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 three, 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 two, 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 right? You hear the rumble? That's what was happening. And into that rumble, Jesus is looking and they're, they're selling stuff. And, and on top of that... Oh, it was smelling sweet in there. If you were all the animals and the the um, the the goats were, bah, bah, you know, and the the cows were mooing, and they're all just over there. They're just all just doing it. All, all this, it's just a chaos, pandemonium in the temple court. And so, as all this is going on, Jesus interrupts it. Throws all the, the 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 tables over. He picks up the chairs, stops it over, and then even it is shocking. Only Mark is the one that says he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. As I've been preaching, there've been various kids getting up and getting notes, and I'm totally fine with that. Okay, it's not doesn't bother me at all in one bit. But Jesus would have said, nope, 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 don't go down the aisle, stop right there, no, 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 stop. He wouldn't let anyone get through there, and he made that whole place, which was a ruckus, he made it into calm. He stopped everything, and I'm sure people were like looking at him, going, whoa, who is this? What's happening? And then he teaches them this teachable moment with all quiet. He says, the temple is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but instead you've made this house of prayer into the den of robbers. Now, the religious leaders should have known better than to let all this ruckus take place right there in the court of the Gentiles. Because Jesus merely quotes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, verse 7 describes the Gentiles, how they will come to the temple, even the Gentiles. Listen to this. Isaiah 57, 56, verse 7. Even those I will bring to My holy mountain, even these Gentiles I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar. For My house will be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. Isaiah they're talking about how the, the Gospel's going to go out and all these people from all the land are going to come and they're going to even bring their sacrifices to Jerusalem. Even though they're not Jews, they're going to bring their sacrifice to be accepted of the Lord. And right where the Gentiles can be, all this hubbub is going on and it's creating such a distraction and environment that it defeated everything the Lord had envisioned for the place where He placed His name. They were destroying it. Second quotation comes from Jeremiah 7, in which Jeremiah, some 600 years before Jesus, described the errors of his day. And listen to the errors of his day, because nothing had changed in 600 years. It was still the errors of the day of Jesus. People worshiping and people having activity and yet living sinful lives on top of that. I'll just read the section around Jeremiah 7.11, beginning of verse 8. Behold, Jeremiah said, You are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Right? Can you do all these sinful things and offer to Baal and be idolatrous, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. That you may do all these abominations. Can you come and worship God? Say, we're delivered, we're saved! And yet go out and live 
sinful life, worshipping Baal, full of idolatry? Then Jeremiah says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. God sees. Those of Jeremiah, they were living sinful lives. Yet when they came to the temple, they said, Hey, we're delivered. And the Lord says, I've seen it. And yet now here is the Inspector General, up close and personal, being able to witness firsthand what's taking place in the temple. Now, fundamentally, I don't think that this buying and selling was intrinsically the error of these people. Because God commanded, Exodus 23, verse 17, three times a year during the Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Ingathering, that all the men of Israel would come to Jerusalem to worship. That meant that pilgrims came to Jerusalem, needed to come from all around, wherever they lived, up in the Sea of Galilee, over by the, the Mediterranean Sea, down south in the Negev, wherever they came from, they needed to come with animal sacrifices. And it's very hard to bring animals a long distance so instead, they just brought their, their money. And they would buy these animals so that they could sacrifice. I think that was entirely reasonable. Uh, I think, though, there's two problems. First of all, location. They put it right in the court of the Gentiles. Right, right past the door where you can go into the, the, the true temple courtyard where things are really sacrificed. The Holy of Holies, just yards away. They choose to do business right there in the temple. I, I think they could have chosen to do business maybe a couple hundred yards away, maybe a quarter mile down the street, so you go there and then you walk your animals, whatever quarter mile, three to a mile. I think that would have been okay because it wouldn't have desecrated that place which is supposed to be a house of prayer because they need a sacrifice. You're going to do it somehow. Why not do it over there in the, the sacrifice barnyard or something? But filling the place of prayer with sounds and smells of animals was horrible. But their second problem, which is probably bigger, was their greed. Extorting the worshipers with their high prices. Jesus called them robbers. A thief. One who steals, charges too high a price. Can you think of where that ever happens? You go to a ball game. Big signs say, no food or drink inside the stadium. Right? Or you go to some other amusement park or something, no food or drink in here. And then once you get in, they got all the food and drink you want, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty expensive stuff there, right? They're gouging you. You ever feel gouged? I feel gouged all the time when you go to a place like that. They're thieves. In it for the money. I don't blame them. It's good business, okay? But not in the temple. That's not how God works. And so Jesus wasn't happy. He overturned the tables. He overturned the chairs. He disrupted the entire place. Shut down the operations for a day. You, you want to know what gets God angry? Hypocritical worship. That's what gets God angry. When you got stuff going on on the outside, you're, you're saying, yeah, we're delivered, we're saved, and yet you're going home and doing something else. That's what gets God angry. See, the Jews of Jesus' day were like the fig tree. All this show, all this activity, but upon closer inspection, bearing no fruit, Oh, the, the temple was going great, right? Worshippers were coming, sacrifice being offered. You can smell the aroma of the, the burnt flesh. But there's no heart, no prayer, no earnest seeking after God. The entire temple enterprise was corrupt and it was Jesus' time to change it. Now, there were those who didn't want it changed, right? These were the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees. They had the power, they enjoyed the power, and they didn't want anybody rocking the boat. That's why I read here in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy Him, for they were afraid of Him. For the whole crowd was astonished at His teaching. This has been the aim of the religious leaders for the entirety of the ministry of Jesus. We saw early on, right, when... Jesus, they accused Jesus of being blasphemy because he forgave the sins of the man, the paralytic who was brought down in the roof. They despised Jesus because he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. They were offended that Jesus didn't fast like the other religious folk did and especially hated him for, hating the, for breaking the rules on the Sabbath. And it says in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out, immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And now, heightened by the hosannas that were sung to him, angered by the overturning of the tables, fearing the crowds who were hanging on his every word, they sought to kill him. 
We'll see them questioning His authority next week as we look at that text. Mark chapter 11, verse 28. What authority are you doing these things by? Who gave you the authority to do these things? They're trying to hit His authority. They're trying to address Him. like trying to, trying to get at His authority. Trying to cut Him down. And then the following week, we're going to look at some of these questions that they asked Him in chapter 12, verse 13, when the Herodians came, this political group, to ask Him a political question. And these Sadducees came and talked about the resurrection because they had a, um, a bone to gripe about the resurrection. And then others. And, and they're trying to trap Him in what He said. Chapter 12, verse 13. They said some of the Pharisees and the Herodians came in order to trap him in a statement. They're, they're trying to take him down. And then finally, Mark chapter 14, verse 1, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking out a season by stealth and killed him. See, God was exposing their heart. The inspector general was exposing their heart and they wanted nothing of it. When the inspector general had come and rejected their work, they didn't say... God, help us to reform our ways. No, in turn, they, they turned and rejected the inspector. Rather than reform their ways, they tried to kill him. They didn't want to change. And, and you know, fundamentally, that's what the unrepentant do. When they hear a message they don't want to hear, they know what God says, they hear what God says, and they don't want to do what God says, and so they reject God. Just, just stuff him, and that's what it says in Romans chapter one. Even though they know the truth, what do they do? They suppress it in unrighteousness, right? They suppress God. They're angry with God. They push it away. And, and all the talk around our nation about people angry with God, trying to take God out of everything, it all has to do with their morality. They want to live how they want to live. They want to reject God so that God is not a voice in their lives. And so that's why we read in verse nineteen: When evening came, they would go out of the city. Jesus didn't want to hang around the hostile environment. For these days when they're attempting to kill him, not until the time was right. Well, probably stayed again in Bethany, we're not told in verse 19. Because they walked the same route, because they walked by the fig tree again on their way to Jerusalem the next day. Verse 20. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter saw this fig tree, he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. Well, yeah. I mean, if Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, what's going to happen? No one's ever going to eat fruit again from that tree. And it was withered from the roots up. It just kind of got withered right on up. It's not like Jesus took a secret axe to it and cut it down from the top down. It was from the roots up. It just withered. Such is the power of Jesus. One commentator said this, within 24 hours, the tree on which Jesus had pronounced his curse had changed from a seemingly vigorous woody perennial in full foliage to a shrunken corpse, the ghost of its former self. And that was a picture of what would happen to the Jews. It's a picture of what would happen to this religious system of Israel. It's a picture of what would happen, I believe, to the Temple Mount. Look, look on, verse 22. Jesus says this. Jesus answered, saying to them, saying to Peter, saying to all the disciples, have faith in God Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Now, the big question here is, to what mountain is he referring to? Remember, Jericho is down there. He's right up. He was at Bethany. He's right up probably on the crest of the Mount of Olives. And from that crest, which is a Mount of Olives, he could look over here and see the Temple Mount. And he could look over here and see the Dead Sea. Now, some say, could be right, that he's referring to the Mount of Olives, right where he's standing. He said, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, get up and remove it into the heart of the sea, it will remove for you. But I, I think he might, this is conjecture a little bit, I think he might have been saying, I say to you, whoever says of this mountain here, this Mount Jerusalem, with all the, all the temple sacrifices, get up, be rooted, and be cast into the sea, Believing it will be done for you. That may be the one that Jesus was talking about. Mount Moriah. If that is the case, he's referring to the Temple Mount, then Jesus in some way is prophesying, predicting, expecting the destruction of the Temple Mount. And upon the cross, of course, Jesus destroyed all need for animal sacrifice because He became the ultimate sacrifice to which all the animal sacrifices pointed. 
Thus He made the Old Covenant obsolete. Hebrews 8.13 In 40 years of Jesus saying this, Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and the temple was completely destroyed. In fact, when we get to chapter 13, we will look at that. Totally destroyed. Totally wiped out. That's what He says, right? Chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Every stone, even to the foundation, is going to be taken up. It's going to be gone. This might be what Jesus is saying. I'm coming to destroy this mountain. I'm going to cast this mountain into the sea. Oh, not by force, but by love. I love this city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to be with you. I long to gather you together like a hen would gather her chicks underneath her wings, but you are not willing. Behold, he said, I have left your house desolate. Matthew 23:38. I have left that place desolate. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. That's some conjecture. You can think about that. But ultimately, what Jesus is doing here in verses 22 and through 26, he's bringing down to personal application really for us. He says right here, have faith in God. He says, Pray. Verse 24. I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they'll be granted to you. So believe and trust and faith and pray even in believing these things. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Verse 26, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. This is the Inspector General looking in our lives. Really, what is it that God wants to look and see in our lives? Really, I think three things. He wants us to see. He wants to see faith and a belief and a trust in God in all things. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, we can believe the curse. And Jesus says He's going to die, we believe He's going to die. When He says He's going to rise again, believe He's going to rise again. But believe what Jesus says. And pray. This means praying for some things. And I just can confess even my lack of faith. I was with Yvonne. We were praying one morning. I forget what it was. Thursday morning. We were just, just praying together on our knees before the day started. And um, just, just prayed for something. Just, just praying that God would, would do something. And then, then it went on. And then uh, throughout the day, came back. And, and kind of, I remember telling Yvonne some things that happened that day. And she said, um, huh, we prayed for you, didn't you? I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I did pray for that. And uh, just God, God was faithful and gracious to answer prayer. And we just need to believe and trust in greater ways that he does that. And, and I'm not standing up here as the great object to say, hey, look at the way I pray. I'm feeble. But thank the Lord for this illustration this week. You need to trust the Lord more for that. We need faith, we need to pray, we need to believe, and, and we need to forgive. It's kind of, a strange, kind of a strange perspective here, verse 25. Why, why would he begin to talk about forgiveness? Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Why, why would he get at that? Here's why. I think this is like the heart of the Gospel. Is that, that hearts that hold grudges against towards other people haven't understood the forgiveness of Christ. When you understand everything that God has given you in Jesus, how He's forgiven you the great riches of your debt you owe to Him, how can you but not forgive trivial transgressions? In another instance in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus was mentioning the same kind of thing, remember He told the story about the guy who owed right, 220,000 talents, which is like astronomical amount of money. He was probably a, a worker who was collecting taxes and got some kind of debt. And, he, and um, so the, the king threw him in prison. Who was going to him, he said, oh, have mercy on me. I'll pay it back. <laughs> he said, okay, well, at least he's begging. I'll let him go. And there's a guy who just owed him a hundred bucks. And he choked him and demanded his money back. Showing he didn't understand his great forgiveness that he was forgiven. And when the king heard that, he threw him in jail. Because if you don't understand your forgiveness before the Lord, you won't understand other people, forgiveness to other people. And if you're not forgiving other people, holding grudges, it says God is not going to forgive you. I mean, I think as the Inspector General here, this is really to the heart. Uh, do you have grudges against people? Are you holding things against them? 
because as it says in verse 25, verse 26 even, it's in some manuscripts it's not here, but at least this is true because it comes from Matthew as well. If you do not forgive, neither will your fathers in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, it's not that, that my forgiveness of others causes God to forgive. It's God's cause of for, forgiveness to me that extends to others and release the heart of the gospel. It's what it's fundamentally what God wants to look at when He looks at fruit in your life. So do you believe? Do you trust in the Lord? Are you praying to the Lord, believing Him? Are you forgiving and extending that forgiveness, not holding grudges against other people? I think that's what Jesus is speaking about. Let's just bow our heads even right now. Father, You are the the chief inspector, the inspector general who will inspect our lives. And, and I would pray, God, help us not to be like Jerusalem. Flash on the outside and yet nothing on the inside. Busyness and activity, faithful church attendance, and yet in our homes seeing no fruit at all. God, help us to be true. Help us not to be hypocritical. Help us to be who we are at all times. And if the Lord is here and convicting you right now, the solution isn't to then be really good at home. The solution is to confess your sin and cry to God for mercy. Pleading forgiveness, the cross of Christ. And, and all who come to Him will be forgiven. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you just cry out to Him. I would encourage you to do that. And so, Father, I pray that Rock Valley Bible Church, we wouldn't be playing games, but that we would be genuine people who love You. I pray for this book, Radical, that we will go over in our small groups. God, I pray that as You search us and in areas where we're found wanting, I pray, O oh Lord, that we would turn from those ways and not resist You God, but live to your glory, living with an open hand, living with an open conscience, free from any condemnation, knowing that you have inspected us, have found the sin, have forgiven us in Christ. Help us to be like David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and, O oh Lord, lead us to the everlasting way, the way of prayer and faith and forgiveness. We put these things in Your hand, O oh Lord. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.